As we come now to the hearing of God's word, <clears throat> excuse me, please turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians in chapter 3. That's Philippians chapter 3. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know the words that we are about to read and hear come from you. Would you sanctify us in truth? Your word is truth. Help us now to love these things because they come from you. Guide our understanding now by your spirit and help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Philippians in chapter 3. We'll start in verse 17 and then read just a bit into chapter 4. This is Philippians 3, beginning verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is God's word. We're now reaching the home stretch of Philippians. We have just a few more weeks here in this letter. I hope you've not grown tired of it, but have grown encouraged by it. In this section that we've just read, if you've been here with us over the past several months, you'll notice some of the same themes that Paul has already talked about previously. And the fact that we see some of these same things repeated shows us that Paul really has purpose in his writing. He's not just sitting down and writing whatever comes to mind and about the weather, although that would be interesting. He's trying to tell us something, so he's not just cooking, you know, the Saturday night stew where whatever's left in the refrigerator, you just kind of pull it all out and throw it in the pot. No, he's got a recipe here, and he's trying to cook a particular meal that he wants us now to eat. So we hear again in this section some of the same themes that have come up already for us. Uh, he talks here about imitating the example in the lives of believers who are walking in holiness of Jesus. 
So you'll remember some time ago when we talked in chapter 2 about Timothy and Epaphroditus, the ones who were embodiments of the gospel of Christ. Men who were weak, yet were strong in Jesus. And so Paul here again is calling us to follow the example of those believers. In this section again, we hear him talk about our heavenly citizenship. That we heard this in, earlier in chapter 1, that we're to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. So whatever earthly citizenship we have, whether we're Philippian or Roman or American or otherwise, for a Christian, our citizenship of the kingdom of God is greater. That Christ has now ushered in that citizenship as a king of a new kingdom. And finally, here again in this section, we hear Paul talk about his fellow workers, or he calls them sometimes his co-labors. He lists even a few particular people that we know almost nothing else about, Euodia and Syntyche, uh, ones who I have trouble saying sometimes, uh, Clement, others. And we've heard him talk in chapter 1 about how all these people, they're striving side by side for the faith that they're partners in the gospel. When we first started this book, you'll remember we talked about how they're in koinonia together, that they're partners, in other words, that they're unified in Christ, so they rise and fall together as one. None of these things are new to us, especially if you've been here in this work through Philippians. We've tasted these dishes already in this letter. And so we could talk about these things again, and that would be a good thing. Uh, we don't come on a Sunday morning just to hear new things, but to hear true things. And sometimes we need true things repeated so that they'll sink deeper into our minds and our hearts. So even though we could focus on any number of these things, I want to focus our attention this morning on one verse in this section. It's a verse that's not particularly central to the book of the uh, Philippians or even central to this letter, but it's a verse that would not let go of me. It's a verse that's in contrast to the other verses around it, a verse that talks about things that are uh, uh, about uh, people who are not followers of Jesus. This verse, Paul says, makes his eyes well with tears. And when I read it, it also makes me sad and a bit disturbed and uneasy. So I'll warn you now, this morning is not going to be a particularly uplifting sermon. It's not likely to be your favorite morning. But these things are true. And we need to hear all of God's honest truth. So take a deep breath now, because we're about to dive deep. The verse I want to focus on is verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things.
the ones Paul is talking about here is not just a tiny group. It's not just a tiny a bundle of, of a few Hitlers and Judases of history. In the previous verse, verse 18, he says he's talking about many people. That's in line with what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, remember, the, the gate that leads to life is narrow, and few are those who find it. But the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter that gate are many. We know that we live in a part of the world and even a part of, of our country that's very churched. But this verse will strip us of the delusion that most people are Christians. And even the words that he uses when he talks about these people, the they, the them, the those people, makes us feel very safe. But we know that this problem is not just outside. These people sometimes are within our own church walls. The end of these people, Paul says, is destruction. And to be destroyed here does not mean that they are gone or obliterated. This is an endless, ongoing destruction. What he's talking about is hell itself. This is fire and brimstone here. And I know that phrase, the fire and brimstone, causes some of us to bristle a bit because it's been so misused. If a preacher only always talks about fire and brimstone, you should not trust him because he's missed so much about God and God's word. But on the other hand, if a preacher never ever talks about fire and brimstone, you should not trust him either, because this is a harsh reality of the Bible. What Paul's saying here to us, and when Jesus talks about these matters of hell, this is not fear tactics. This is not scaremongering. It's just about telling the truth. And we need to see the full horrors of sin. We need to see that the eventual end of this is the righteous wrath of God poured out. Jesus does not avoid this issue, so we could go many places in the Gospels, but John mentions this also in Revelation chapter 20, toward the end of the Bible. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 10, he writes this. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever and then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. 
And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Their end, day and night, forever and ever, is a fiery destruction. Can you breathe yet? Now, some will say at this point, this is terrible. That's truly awful, and it is. But they'll also ask, how could God do or allow such a thing? But the reality is here that even in the lake of fire, these people do not want God. They will gnash their teeth and shake their fists and try to justify themselves and blame God for their own sin and situation. The reality is that they already have their own God. Remember, Paul says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Now, when he says their God is their belly, it sounds like he's talking about something like gluttony. And that's part of it. But it's so much more than this. He means these people are slaves to their own appetites and desires. They want what they want. And this is sufficient on its own for damnation. It's an ongoing violation of the very first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me, says the Lord. And when, he, when we hear him talk about gods before him, sometimes we think about, you know, the Egyptian gods with the bird heads or the Assyrian gods with, with the wings and the bodies of an ox, or sometimes we think about the Greek gods like Zeus and Poseidon. And these are all violations of that commandment too, but set those aside for just a moment. A far bigger threat to all of this is the God of our gut, the God of my own belly, a life of me first. We do this more often than we realize. We do this when we hush up family secrets instead of dealing with them because we're interested in preserving our own image. That's kneeling to the God of the belly. We do this when we avoid sharing about Jesus with people mostly because we're afraid or embarrassed of what they might think of us. That is kneeling to the God of the belly. We do this when we are jealous of another person's house 
or wife or work or absence of work or body shape. And in all of this, we cease to be thankful for what God actually has given us. That is kneeling to the God of the belly. And when we feed this God, we are jamming poison down our throats. It might seem harmless to us, but these things will kill us. You'll remember after God brought his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, he guided them, he cared for them, he provided for them, and they complained about the food they were given. They said, our bellies want meat. And so here the response then of the Lord in Numbers chapter 11, verse 18, the Lord says this, say to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat? It was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. And you shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month you shall eat until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? He gave them the desires of their bellies. And as a result of this, actually, a plague came. And many people died. They buried many bodies in this area before they entered into the promised land. And they named the place where they buried that Kibrath Hatava, meaning the graves of craving. They were eaten alive by the God of their bellies. Can you breathe yet? Paul is not done. I wish he were. Because his next words in this verse are, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. These people are full of disobedience to God. And that's the very thing that ought, ought to cause them some measure of shame but instead of coming before the Lord in repentance, instead they elevate themselves high and use these things of a, as a badge of honor. These are signs of a hard heart. And this happens even within the church. It happened in the Bible. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 addresses an issue within the Corinthian church where there was an, an openly known particular case of sexual unfaithfulness among some members. And instead of addressing it so that those people could be restored to Jesus, they boasted about it. Maybe they thought they were showcasing the graciousness of Jesus. Maybe they thought that they were beyond the law of God because they were in the church. Or maybe they thought they were just connecting to culture 
whatever it was, they gloried in their shame. Some things don't change. These days we hold pride parades for this sort of thing. And there are many, even within churches, that jump on that bandwagon and join the cultural tide of glorying in shame. And on the flip side, there are others within the church who would call themselves traditional, who instead of loving these people and gently, kindly telling them the truth, we just stand and thank God that we are not like those heathens. We fast twice a week. We give all the tithes and earnings and we glory in our own self-righteousness. Do you think God is impressed by that? Can you breathe yet? Paul now, I'm sure at this point, with a very heavy heart, closes this section by saying, their minds are set on earthly things. By this, he doesn't just mean that they brush their teeth, they go to work, they clean their kitchen, they pull their weeds. He means that in these people's lives, that's all there is. They get up in the morning, they do their business, they prepare for bed, and they go to sleep. They begin on Monday, they end on Friday. The next task, the next chore, the next thing, and they just pass their days until they die. The author of Ecclesiastes, uh, he calls himself the preacher, puts on this earthly mindset himself. And it reaches a very sad conclusion. He says this at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. In other words, he says that for those who live only for what is seen under the sun, their lives become vanity, become emptiness, becoming wind chasing. It's no wonder that we see in these people so much depression, so much hopelessness, even to the point of suicide. Can you breathe yet? I listened recently to a comedian who talked about the way she crafts her act. And jokes, she said, come in two parts. There's a setup that builds tension, and then a punchline 
which relieves that tension, and we laugh. And in the middle of this comedian's comedy act, suddenly she got very serious. And she shared some very heavy personal things about her life, about abuse and violence and her struggle with identity. And the words just hung in the air. There was no punchline, just silence. And there was no laugh to make it all okay. There was no relief of that tension. She said, I refuse to give you a punchline because I want you to listen. I want you to sit in this tension and I want you to feel it deep in your bones. I want it to knock the wind out of your lungs almost so that you can't breathe, so that you feel the weight of the tension. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Is this true of you? I shudder to think of that. And if this is not true of you, is this true of ones you know? If so, why do you do nothing? Feel the tension? Some of us at this point may be looking for a punchline now. Nathan, there's sin, but, but you know there's forgiveness and there's grace. And, and yes, that is true in a sense, but when we say it like that, it is so incomplete. We often treat the Bible so simplistically with two parts like a joke. There's a setup of sin, and then Jesus saves as a punchline, but oops. The comedian who shared these things about the joke in two parts with the setup and the punchline also said a story comes in three parts with a beginning and a middle and an end. And to really understand a story, we need to get all three of those parts. Paul here in Philippians, with just a few short sentences, has told us a true, sad, heartbreaking story of many people with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Those who begin with the God of their belly, who then live as enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end is destruction. And we need to really get this. And we need to know that this actually is our story before that story can be rewritten by Jesus in the gospel story. 
You'll remember in uh, Luke's gospel, in chapter 7, Jesus is sitting at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And they're eating together. And that meal is disrupted by a woman. And she comes in and anoints the feet of Jesus with special ointment and with her own tears. And her story begins very much like our own. She's described simply as a sinner. Her God, we're sure, is her, was her belly. And she had a reputation for it. She perhaps lived seeking the attention of men. Whatever it was, she knew this was true of her. And she had been sitting in the tension of that sin. She really got it. She knew that she gloried in her shame. And she knew that her mind was stuck on earthly things until this one Jesus had stepped down out of heaven onto earth and disrupts the direction of her destructive story. And she sees in Jesus a flicker of hope for her. In this time, Jesus looks at her and says with, with authority, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. But this doesn't just come in two parts. She's a sinner. He forgives her. This is a true story now with three parts. So this is not the end when he forgives her. This is just the middle. The end of her story now because of Jesus is no longer destruction. The end of her story is that she comes to love Jesus because of what he has given her. And now she can probably, for the first time in her life, finally breathe. Would you pray with me? Our great God, would you help us not to turn away from what is hard in our lives, but to look it right in the eye, to face the depths of our sin and the end of our destruction that we have set up for ourselves so that we will see the depths of your love and grace and we will come to love you, to thank you, and to worship you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.